Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast. In our sixth episode, graduate student Emily Judd interviews the Protestant and Muslim chaplains at Yale about Christian-Muslim relations. Omar Bajwa is director of Muslim Life at Yale and teaches a course on Islamic theologies of political and social transformations. Ian Oliver is head of Protestant Life at Yale and teaches a course on building interreligious community. Ian gets candid about the dynamic between Christians and Muslims in the United States. I have to admit, for Christians in America, it wasn't really until September 11th, 2001, mm-hmm. that Christians' eyes were opened, that, that Muslims in America existed. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say. No, that's it's real. Yeah. Omer describes his interfaith encounter with the Dalai Lama. I went up to the podium and I spoke about that. Um, and then uh, when it was the Dalai Lama's turn to speak, um, he turned back towards me, which was really cool because he has a, quite a presence. Uh, and, and he addressed what I had said. And Ian and Omer share surprising similarities between the religions of Christianity and Islam. I think compared to any others, they are the most preaching traditions. And there's much written in the, in the Quran and then the Hadith, the prophetic narrations about the life and the message and the teachings of Jesus. And it's, you know, we have this like really profound, extraordinary figure that we share, that we have our own perspectives on, um, but that really in many ways uh, connects us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Omar, you are the Muslim chaplain here at Yale University, and Ian, you are the Protestant chaplain here. And how does Christian-Muslim encounter or dialogue happen? I mean, I'm an American Muslim. I've lived here almost my entire life. And just it's growing up, it's living your life. You know, so you have Christian classmates and neighbors and uh, co-workers and strangers, you know, people that you run into and uh, get to know over time. And I think that is one type of encounter. But I think a lot of it is also, you know, uh, what's the word? Um, conscious right? It's that you're quite literally opening your doors and inviting another congregation or, or people into your space and, and developing a relationship. I have to admit, for Christians in America, it wasn't really until September 11th, 2001, mm-hmm. that Christians' eyes were opened, that, that Muslims in America existed. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say. No, that's it's real. <laughs> yeah. and, and for a lot of folks, that became the impetus to say, something is clearly happening. I don't understand anything about it. Uh, so I need to reach out to my Muslim neighbors and find out something because this is very confusing to me. Mm-hmm. How, what is the percentage of Muslims in America? It's a great question. I mean, anytime you talk about data and demographics, there is, you know, can, depending on who you ask. Uh, but the, the, I think that of all the data that's out there, you know, the number six or seven million Muslims in the U.S. Uh, is, I think, um, is pretty accurate. And so 330 million, right, is I think the U.S. census, the latest census. So, you know, it's, we're talking about one plus percent, right, of the American population. And I was wondering if both of you would be able to share a personal interfaith encounter that changed you? Many years ago, I was really privileged and honored to speak at an event with the Dalai Lama, um, and they had several religious representatives on stage, and we were given just a matter of minutes in which we had to address... um, uh, you know, the, the theme was called Agents of Light, and that's how I approached it, to be peacemakers and to really bring light into the darkness of the world. And so I had three minutes, um, and, you know, there's stereotypes that exist out there of Islam and violence and terrorism and belligerence and whatnot. And so 
I just, I said, let's tackle this, you know, head on. And so in my allotted minutes, I spoke about, uh, you know, the struggles that I have as a Muslim, that the faith that I was taught, that my parents taught me, that my teachers taught me is completely at odds with this sort of horrific stereotype out there. Um, but it exists and there are people that do these things. So the point of the story is, is that, you know, in this thousands of people in the audience in front of them with the Dalai Lama literally on stage next to me, I went up to the podium and I spoke about that. Um, and then uh, when it was the Dalai Lama's turn, to speak, um, he turned back towards me, which was really cool because he has a, quite a presence. Uh, and, and he addressed what I had said and said that in the same way, and I'm re- reconstructing this memory, but he said in the same way that you have mischievous Muslims, and that was the word that he used, you have mischievous Muslims in the world that give this global faith a bad name. There are mischievous uh, Buddhists in the world uh, that give Buddhism a bad name. And in the front row, there were all these Buddhist monks uh, that, um, I mean, he, he was, in many ways, speaking to them, right? Not to us. And some of them had this looks of deep consternation and embarrassment and others uh, giggled a bit, right? Because they kind of get what they got what he was saying. Um, and I, I think that moment for me was just very uh, poignant. Even after all these years, I remember it because uh, I sort of went out on a limb uh, to, to tackle this head on and, and he reciprocated and he said, well, I'm going to meet you where you're coming from. Um, and we need to talk about these issues across, you know, within our community as well as between communities. Wow, what an experience! No, thank the you. Dalai Lama. Oh my gosh, Ian, I don't have anything can you top as that? At all. <laughs> <laughs> there are many stories. Gosh, when I, I lived in India for a while, and I set up this totally voluntary thing outside my work with a local Hindu missionary uh, that he and I were going to meet, and he taught me the principal Upanishads, and I taught him the Gospel of Mark uh, over. 12 weeks or longer. And it was great. It was a great conversation, but it, what it underlined for me was what completely different worlds we come from. Uh, and it came to me in his reading of my text, uh, because he kept asking, well, what does, what does Mark mean? You know, what, what does Luke mean? What, 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 what's the deeper meaning of all these names? I said, they're just names. And, you know, and what's the significance of this event? There's really no significance. It just happened. You know, but this sort of bare history of the Gospel of Mark uh, versus these deeply philosophical texts. And I thought, oh, boy, we're coming from totally different places. It was appreciative. If we can't learn everything about the religion, I guess what would be the point of interfaith learning? Just to get, you know, a basic minimum? Is there a basic minimum that everyone, do you think, should have of religious literacy? Uh, there's a minimum level that dispels the kind of stereotypes and attacks that are out there on the media. So people can look at the internet, put in a question and tell what's crazy from what's not. Hmm. I think that's sort of my minimum. (laughs) And Omar, I know that you have a website, themuslimchaplain.com. Yes. And you have a list of suggested books Mm -hmm. um, about Islam that Mm -hmm. that people should read. Um, Is there one in particular that you would say if you don't know anything about Mm -hmm. Islam, you should read this book. If one had to choose one website, I would say it's islamfyi.org, which our wonderful friends and colleagues at Princeton Chaplain's Office put together. And it's a one-stop shop in terms of just a wonderful portal into answering all of the most commonly answered questions about Islam. So it's islamfyi.org. And if I had to recommend one book, it's a a book by this uh, gentleman named Prince Ghazi, who comes from Jordan. And... um, 
Um, he's been to Yale before, in fact, for the common word many, many years ago, from my understanding. But it's called A Thinking Person's Guide to Islam. And he takes 12 verses from the Quran, and he says that this is the essence of sort of the, the spectrum of Islam's teachings. Uh, it's beautifully written. Um, you know, I, I, at every, I can't recommend the book highly enough. There is one book that I would recommend everyone to read that's outside of my faith tradition. Um, it's actually about Islam. It's called Ambiguous Adventure mm. um, by uh, Hamadou Kane, I believe. But it's a spiritual autobiography. And we talk about this in Ian's class, Building into Religious Community, that spiritual autobiographies can be a really good way to learn not just about you know, the facts about the faith, but putting it all into a perspective and a lived experience that can really change a person and make a difference. Uh, Two weeks ago, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman met a group of religious leaders in New York, including two Roman Catholic and three Jewish figures. Bloomberg Politics called the meeting a rare interfaith gesture for the de facto ruler of the conservative Islamic kingdom. Is interfaith most powerful when it starts from the top? It's a great question. Um, And I I think these are, you know, the situations where we need multiple approaches. And I think there's something very powerful, if nothing, at least symbolic of when it comes from the top, because I think we live in a world where people look to their political and social and uh, cultural leaders and religious leaders for direction um, and oftentimes mimic that. Um, So I think there is a definite power to that. Yeah, and I think you... One of your interests, if you look at Nostra Aetate and Vatican II. Yeah, that's the Catholic Church's declaration on uh, their relation with other religions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a revolutionary moment where it came from the top. I think it was capturing the zeitgeist, uh, but it clearly was out ahead. And it's, it's... People are still working on it today. Uh, and so I think there are movements from the top. But as we've talked about in our class, I think there's, for most of us, the most important encounters are everyday mm-hmm. encounters that people have, not a structured meeting with, mm-hmm. you know, with big thinkers and mm-hmm. things like that. <laughs> you know? And for me, actually, a personal encounter that I had was over spring break. I spent time in Palestine a majority Muslim state with a significant Christian population. And I spoke with Palestinian Muslims and Christians, and I was really inspired by their solidarity. And it was against what they consider oppression by the Israeli government. And they even hold joint prayers for Palestinian political prisoners. And I told this to another Christian when I returned from my trip, and she responded very cynically and said that, There's only unity between Muslims and Christians in Palestine because they see Israel as a common enemy and that if that external threat leaves, there goes all the inner harmony. What would you say to that? Uh, I mean, I think you, the way you frame the question, uh, you know, that sort of qualifier there is that, uh, that this young woman that you spoke to had a cynical response. And so, you know, there's the expression that seeing is believing. Uh, and then um, there's a joke that the postmodern joke is that believing is seeing, right? You see what you believe or what you want to see. And so I think for someone that's coming to it, that the lens that they, that they encounter the world and look at the world through is one of conflict or perpetual conflict and um, lack of cooperation. Then they're going to see that. And so I have a different lens. And I think that there are 
countless other examples of Muslim Christian uh, peaceful coexistence and cooperation and conversation and times of tension as well. But it's a whole spectrum. And uh, I personally believe that uh, if it was not that situation, because we have so many other scenarios and examples of Muslims and Christians living together for hundreds and hundreds of years in communities all around the world that, you know, at least I want to be a person of hope, right? Not a person of sort of despair in the world. Yeah, and I was thinking when, I, when you told the story, I was thinking of uh, the civil rights movement in America and the connections between Jewish religious leaders and African-American Christian leaders facing a common enemy and to some extent, uh, but how that did actually draw the communities together and help them understand each other in a way they never had before. Mm-hmm. And what would you say is a surprising similarity between Christianity and Islam? Some commonality that may surprise others between the two religions. <laughs> I would say what strikes me day to day working with Omer is, I think compared to any others, they are the most preaching traditions. Because hmm. uh, yeah. we talk about how yeah. uh, on Fridays, on Sunday, uh, we mm-hmm. have this job uh, yeah. to take a text and present it to a community. They're, they're different. Mm-hmm. The expectation's different. The way it's done is different. Uh, but I think that it struck me that compared to many other religions, who all, most of whom have some sort of proclamation of some mm-hmm. kind, I think they're closest there. And I think it may say something about similarities. No, that's a great. I didn't even. I mean, I learned something wonderful right there. I didn't even think about that. Um, I think it's a fantastic question. I'm just trying to imagine, like, what is it that I can sort of comment on? What I would say is that um, while there are differences in the interpretation of the figure and the position of Jesus Christ, I think the commonality is that many people don't know that the, you know Jesus uh, is a revered figure in Islam, um, and there's much written in the in the Quran and then the Hadith, the prophetic narrations about the life and the message and the teachings of Jesus. And it's, you know, we have this like really profound, extraordinary figure that we share, that we have our own perspectives on, um, but that really in many ways uh, connects us. Yeah, one thing that I was really shocked to learn in Professor Lamansana's class here at Christian Muslim Dialogue, we learned that Mary is revered and honored Mm -hmm. in Islam um, and as a Catholic, that really struck me. And I actually did more research on it for a paper for that class. And there are actually pilgrimage sites um, that both, I I think Our Lady of Fatima, Mm -hmm. that both Christians and Muslims go and um, pray. So I thought that was really special. One thing I was wondering, Omar, if you could talk about the shift in attitude towards Muslims in America following the September 11th terror attacks. It's a a big question in that, like, I I have a lot to say about this. Some of my research in graduate school was on this, and I've continued to sort of engage with this. You know, really briefly, what I would say is that um, the shift was clearly largely in one direction, right, where it became this this fear, this anxiety, this Islamophobia, this xenophobia that was unleashed um, after the tragic events of September 11th. Um, Because for many Americans, that was uh, just a very blunt, direct encounter with Islam and the Muslim world, which they didn't know very much about. So Edward, Professor Ed, the late Professor Edward Said wrote the book uh, Orientalism in 1979, and a year later he wrote Covering Islam, which you know is prescient in many ways when he talks about the lack of relationship that Western uh, audiences and American audiences and media had with the Muslim world. And for many of them of that generation, it was the Iranian uh, revolution hostage crisis in 79. And so for where we are now, the tragic events of September 
11th, you know, were that blunt encounter. Um, but to answer the question, you know, the, the, there was a lot of fear, a lot of suspicion born out of a lot of ignorance and animosity, unfortunately, that came out. Nonetheless, I think it also just opened up new conversations and spaces for, as Ian had mentioned before, is that um, people had been doing sort of low-level interfaith work and relationship building and engagement. And now mosques and churches actually formalize these kinds of uh, programs. Uh, and you've had now 17 years of these, and they've borne amazing fruit and increased religious literacy in both communities. And you actually spent six years in India. What was it like to go from being in the religious majority in America to the religious minority? Christians make up only about 2% of the population in India. I recommend to my students in my class that if you have the opportunity, I, I urge Christians in America to go somewhere and experience what it's like to be a significant religious minority, because I think it's only then that you can really appreciate the position of religious minorities in our society. Because I remember being in India and any public recognition of my tradition was amazing and, you know, was almost, you know, uh, induced tears because you would go through the year and... Everyone, every, all the holidays were somebody else's holidays. All the cultural stuff was somebody else's cultural stuff. All the stuff on television was about somebody else's religion. And suddenly, when somebody you know put up a Christmas star in their window, or that someone observed the holiday, or someone actually recognized that you belong to this tiny minority tradition, it was heartwarming. And I find in the chaplain's office here, we get the same response mm-hmm. from folks who come from these very small traditions. So I tell everybody, don't tell me about minorities in America until you've been one. What is a public misperception about your faith that you want to correct? I'm sure there's many, but if you could mm-hmm. pick just one. Sure. No, no, then I appreciate the qualification there. I would say that the, for me, the most egregious public misperception about Islam that I want to correct is this uh, assumption that Islam is inherently violent or belligerent. Um, towards others, whereas where I, what I've been taught and what I have seen lived in the lives of people that I consider very learned and not just learned, but, but very devout, um, is one of mercy, that Islam has the, the principal ethos is one of mercy, not one of violence. At this particular moment, I think I'd want to separate out Christianity and American politics, because I think we're at a really weird moment. Uh, where some Christians seem to be violating their, their own beliefs in pursuit of a particular political goal. And so I would want to, if I was going to try and encourage people to see things differently, it would be that Christianity, a lot, a lot of my friends here think Christianity has always been anti-women, always been uh, for the power structure, has always been anti-LGBT, has always been this, has always been this, has always been this. And that's not the Christianity I see on the ground most of the time. And I just wish people saw that. But some of the more extreme voices have been so good about getting their word out there that nobody can hear the rest of us. And that probably has similarities in Islam. What is the ultimate goal of interfaith work? The fact of interfaith work comes before the goal in the Mm. fact that I think interfaith work is unavoidable in the modern world, in the contemporary world. And so it's not sort of choosing an ideal, but how do we deal with the situation as it exists on the ground? But I think as I see it, my goal is 
overcoming obstacles to treat my neighbor as I would like to be treated. And Omer, what do you say to people who might say that interfaith waters down religion or in order to get all of these different believers to engage with each other, they have to give up some part of their religion. They can't be as committed. One need not water it down. It's that, you know, I think genuine work is that you come as you are and I want to engage with you as you are. And we can be in a conversation about difference and commonality. And I think people oftentimes just think it's about, let's just talk about the common the commonalities and water down, to use your word, and paper over the differences. But no, I think once you get to a level of trust and respect, one can talk about differences and appreciate the differences. Ian, what's a teaching from the Christian tradition that can help motivate interfaith engagement? It's funny because it's so basic that I think a lot of people miss it mm. <laughs> because it's, it's at such a fundamental level. And it's loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, you know, the most basic things Jesus says. Omar, what about mm-hmm. um, what traditions or what religious teachings in Islam mm-hmm. can motivate interfaith engagement? One specific one in the Quran, there's a verse that I'm paraphrasing here in which God says that he created us into nations and tribes so that we might know one another. And the idea there is that, you know, the human spectrum of diversity, of faith, of, of language, of culture, of race, et cetera, et cetera, is all part of God's design. And it's, this is not happenstance that God designed things in this way so that we as human beings, right, as really in that shared human family, get to know one another over the course of our lives. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. It was great to hear your insight on Christian Muslim dialogue. Thank you. Thanks.